Yeah, to me, you know, what really makes an impact is the supervisor at the beginning of every shift saying, hey, Tony, Juan, you're working on the fifth floor. You're going to work next to the edge of the building. Make sure your guardrails are up. If the guardrails have to come down, make sure you're in fall protection. You know it's got to be tight. You know the D-ring's got to be in the center of your back. Make sure you're anchored to something that'll support 5,000 pounds of force. And make sure you've checked off your harness for the day. Make sure you really inspect it. What that does is it tells the worker, hey, this is what I'm doing. These are the hazards and this is what I need to do. This is also what my supervisor, the guy that signs off on my paycheck every week, wants me to do. And when they feel that the supervisor has buy-in, there's a complete trickle-down effect. When you have a That's competent good. supervisor who cares and talks to the workers directly about expectation, whether it's production, safety, or quality, it makes a difference. Because at the end of the day, the worker always wants to make the supervisor happy. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I have new Environmental Transformation Podcast t-shirts for sale. I can't think of a better way to let people know you care about the environment and that you support the show. Wear your t-shirt with pride knowing you are making an impact and raising awareness with others about the environmental transformation topics we cover on the show. To get your t-shirt for only $20, go to my website at www.seankgrady.com and send me a message with your shirt size and address. I'll reach back out to you and coordinate payments. I currently accept Venmo and PayPal. So get your shirt today. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady. And today's guest is Dan Blankfeld. He is the uh, VP of Safety uh, for the CBG Building Company. Uh, he oversees the entire national safety program and develops policies, countermeasures, risks, or countermeasures for risk, and mentors a growing team of 17 safety professionals. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Dan, you know, uh, we've met uh, in previous uh, encounters with our uh, credentialed uh, association that we both belong to, the IHMM, and you know, we uh, talked a little bit about what you do uh, during that encounter. And I thought, you know, it'd be good to bring you on to talk about, you know, what is it what is it like to, to build a safety culture in today's you know environment? You know, let's let's dive into that a little bit and so let's, <laughs> let's talk about that. I'm sure you got a lot of expertise and uh, experience to talk about that. Yeah, I've spent a little time in the safety world uh, developing cultures within organizations. Uh, I'll tell you right now, it's actually the easiest time to uh, build culture, uh, which is unbelievable. Really, COVID has really changed the environment that we work in. Um, part of COVID, it was uh, with some companies, it was like pulling teeth, explaining what a environmental safety and health professional actually does. Uh, but now that uh, the EHNS teams have stepped up across the board, uh, whether it's construction, general industry, um, schools, wherever, um, 
it, it's really shown that, hey, you know, we can take the bull by the horns when an emergency chaotic event occurs and uh, manage risk. And that's really what safety does is manage risk. Yeah, I mean, you know, you guys have been thrown into the forefront of, uh, you know, most businesses through this COVID and, you know, environment uh, in the pandemic in the past year and a half. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to be in that role, uh, dealing with all those implications on a daily basis. Um, And before we dive into some of that, because, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. But before we do, let's just really give the listeners a real brief background. of How did you get involved with safety? And how did you end up becoming the VP of safety at, at you know, CBG Building Company? Yeah. Um, so uh, I basically started in the fire rescue service in 1988. Um, worked my way up to uh, deputy fire chief for several uh, large departments in the Montgomery County Fire Rescue Service in Montgomery County, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, through that, I was looking for something that I could utilize those skill sets and also develop a, a career. Um, found construction safety and in 1993 uh, I started working for a small minority contractor called SMS construction which unfortunately has been out of business for many many years Um, started to develop my chops in safety uh, started to learn more about OSHA um, uh, Department of uh, Labor um, uh, all the different regulatory agencies uh, whether it's uh, EPA or uh, any of the other code enforcement uh-huh. groups uh-huh. Uh, started to learn the standards and uh, started working for larger and larger companies uh, developed uh, the ability to really develop cultures within organizations uh, lower EMR rates uh, increase profitability decrease risk and kind of became a commodity within the uh, construction community that's awesome so you kind of worked your way up and landed yourself over at uh, you know CBG uh, yep. and, and, and took on a role. Now, when you went there, did you take on the role as the VP or did you kind of work your way up a little bit there too? I came as a, a senior executive team member as the national director of uh, safety. Uh, it was actually during the COVID response that they uh, promoted me to the vice president position, uh, which they actually previously didn't have within our organization. So, mm. um, you know, kind of showed what we do as an organization, uh, my capabilities and capacities, and I was uh, rewarded uh, with a promotion. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, so let's let's dive back into this pandemic response uh, conversation. I, I gotta imagine, you know, all of the people you have to deal with, all the precautions that you need to set up and put into place, just in a moment's notice. To be honest with you, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how did you get through that? I mean, what did you do, and and you know. What was what was in your mind in you know, responding? It's been probably a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it's kind of funny because uh, at the same time we were dealing with a large loss fire, uh, we were dealing with floods, we were dealing with uh, civil unrest in a lot of the areas in which we work in, uh, and then the pandemic comes along. So mm. it was kind of uh, multiple situations all at the same time. Uh, I will tell you that my background in the fire rescue service as, as a command officer, as a command level instructor, uh, NIMS instructor really paid off. Uh, we were able to rapidly identify uh, what chaos was about to ensue. Uh, just watching the news, you could see what was unfolding and uh, was going to uh, transpire here in the United States, was already starting to unfold uh, in Europe and Asia. 
So uh, basically what, what occurred is um, I picked up the phone, called our CEO and said, hey, look, this is uh, coming to the U.S. We need to start preparing. And I said, we should put together a task force. And my CEO said, yeah, the task force is you and I. Let's get working. So uh, <laughs> immediately we started to put together a, a plan. We started to uh, look at resources that would be required. And we were way ahead of the curve. Uh, we were able to acquire um, PPE before uh, it ran out. Uh, we started developing relationships with vendors. Uh, we opened the purse strings and uh, was able to acquire everything we needed to continue our operation without any delay. Uh, we also started pre-planning on how we were going to motivate our staff to work through the pandemic uh, in the field and in the office, um, working on testing uh, procedures and policies and uh, was able to actually uh, build a relationship with a local laboratory to uh, start immediate testing of our staff. Uh, we deployed PPE, wow. we set up a distribution network, uh, we had logistics laid out, and we were able to reduce risk for our, our workforce and also keep them safe while they were out uh, with a, a very vulnerable population, the construction worker. Yeah, no, I mean, golly, just thinking through what you just described is all the, the things you put in place. That is impressive. I mean, and to kind of see what it's see, it's coming down the pike, reacting quickly and then having, you know, uh, you know, the CEO right there lockstep with you and, and committing the resources to get it done. That's awesome. I'm sure you were pretty happy with that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's really the hallmark of building a safety culture to kind of go back in the. Uh where we started. Uh, if you don't have buy-in from your, uh, your <laughs> C-suite crowd, if your CEO, your CFO, the president uh, of the organization uh, do not buy into safety and risk mitigation techniques, then you're never going to have safety culture within your organization. And I'm very lucky and privileged that uh, everyone within our organization has uh, bought in hook, line, and sinker to uh, safety. Uh, everyone realizes that uh, safety is a profit center. And when you look at real risk management technique, you'll, you'll realize real quick that you can increase productivity, decrease risk and increase profitability by doing the right thing for your people and your subcontractors. And that is ensuring their health and well-being uh, on your job sites, projects and in your offices. No, that's that's so true. And, and that that's really good. I mean, you know, you mentioned you've got 17 people that are that are uh, that are you know res you're responsible for that you know you oversee and su supervise. I mean, that you know how how are you meeting uh, their needs of as far as you know mentoring them and and giving them direction they need? How's that working for you? Yeah, that's a real good question. And um, you know, um, with my staff, we try to mentor them. We try to educate them. Uh, we uh, lead by example. Uh, we set goals for the project teams, for the safety teams, um, and then we benchmark that data and we reward them when they uh, hit those benchmarks. So mm -hmm. uh, realistically, it's, it's an easy process to lead these guys. Uh, we have chosen some of the, the, the young, bright superstars in safety to come work for us. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we're just mentoring, training, and educating. We give our guys every resource that they need to be successful. Uh, and that's one of the great things about my company is they, they actually provide me with every bit of resource monetarily, training-wise. Uh, if we need to expend money, we expend money, and we do it with purpose. We don't spend money just to spend it. We spend it on 
uh, purposeful yeah. items that will benefit the employee as well as the company as a whole. Um, and part of that is, is training and education. Um, we provide all of our staff uh, the access to every training program out there. So we encourage them to complete National Safety Council programs. Uh, a lot of our guys come to us from schools that specialize in safety degree programs. Mm -hmm. So they have a good solid background in IH or uh, safety management. And then we send them through classes, we get them trained, and then we send them to the instructor level training class. We send all our guys to the OSHA 510 and 500 programs and all of our staff are qualified instructors uh, basically in every safety area from fall protection through rigging and signaling. Wow. So, I mean, you know, that, that's pretty great to know that you, you're going to work for a company that invests in the employees for their training and uh, to really help them. I mean, so I was one of my questions was going to be like, well, you know, what are some of the steps that you took as a professional to level up in your career to really kind of rise to the level you're at, you know, because the training's important, but what else maybe is there that we're not talking about? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And um, really it's uh, through commitment to the industry, uh, commitment to safety, uh, to education. Um, my education has never stopped. So in 93, when I started in, in safety, um, I just started taking classes. I started to do research. I started to pull out standards and read them. Um, take notes, uh, talk to other industry experts. And at the time, there, there actually weren't very many. Um, it was an emerging field. Um, I came into safety when, you know, the safety guy was the guy that had, you know, one missing finger because he just cut it off last week. And now, hey, you can't do the work anymore. So now you're the safety guy. <laughs> so it was a lot of uh, trial and error. Uh, but uh, joining organizations, um, joining National Safety Council, joining uh, local um, uh, organizations uh, in the DC metropolitan area, we don't have a shortage of safety organizations. So joining those, uh, the associated builders and contractors, um, and then of what course, about credentials? engaging. What about, what about credentials that you've kind of, you know, maybe, you know, I see a bunch of them on your, your name here. Let's talk about that a little bit. How's that helped you? Yeah. You know, um, the credentials to me originally were, were personal goals. Um, I, I wanted to get the credentials just to show kind of my bona fides, show that I have the educational background, that I have the training and the competencies. Um, I think in an industry, uh, when you start developing it as a, a true profession, you have to have some form of credential to prove competency. I mean, if you talk about the accounting world, uh, the CFO world, uh, they have credentials. You talk about uh, medical professionals, they all have credentials in the uh, industrial hygiene world. Uh, so it's just natural that as we grow the profession that their credentials uh, are, are needed uh, just to show that, you know, professional competency. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, within my organization, we require all of our staff to obtain a minimum of the CSMP from the um, IHMM. Uh, because it's a management credential. And what I'm looking for really is people that can manage more than practitioners. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's the other thing that really sets us apart uh, as an organization is uh, we don't go out there and uh, yell at people and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Uh, what we do is we go out and we manage the process from start to finish. Uh, we look at that risk associated with those practices and put controls in place. We teach, we educate, we mentor. 
and that's why the CSMP was uh, actually a good fit for us. Uh, we also pushed the Board of Certified Safety Professionals uh, as co-certificates showing the ability to actually practice in the industry as a practitioner. So gotcha. we push those with our people as well. That's awesome. And, you know, because I think that really, like you mentioned, helps kind of add a level of credibility to, to individuals that are in the workforce. Um, they, they're well knowledgeable about, you know, the various requirements, regulations, uh, practices, and, and then, you know, just people like when they speak or are involved in projects, you know, they definitely bring some level of, you know, confidence with them because they've been through a lot and they, they're aware of a lot of what the requirements are. So it's really great. Um, yeah. And the, the second part of that though, is to show commitment into the industry. Uh, and it also shows true. a continuation of education because of the continuing education credits that you're required. So it really pushes you to uh, maintain your chops within the industry and uh, do research to go to seminars, courses, and uh, participate in the industry. Uh, that's a great so I, point. I'm, that is a great point about, you know, that commitment and that continuing education piece, because a lot of people don't realize yeah, we have to we have to document that we've had you know 20 hours of continuing ed every year you know and and that's a lot of extra time and effort you need to spend to you know maintain your uh you know your awareness of you know safety issues or you know, i'm a chmm so you know hazardous material or regulatory topics so yeah i mean those are those are things that we have to you know continually to learn and educate ourselves to stay up on top of the new topics of the of the, of the year so to speak and it's that's really exactly this episode is sponsored by regenesis have you noticed that the use of traditional methods to remediate pfos contamination in groundwater are proving difficult for many who are struggling to manage long-term pfos exposure Pump and treat systems using activated carbon filters are expensive and difficult to treat wide areas of PFAS contamination. But now, there's a proven alternative to pump and treat systems that eliminates PFAS risk for decades. Regenesis has developed Plume Stop, an in situ remediation technology that solves PFAS remediation challenges in groundwater. Applied under low pressure injection, Plume Stop's colloidal activated carbon quickly and safely addresses PFAS without the expense and maintenance costs incurred with pump and treat systems. To learn more about Plume Stop and the science behind Regenesis proprietary organic polymer dispersion chemistry, go to www.pfostreatment.org. That's www.pfostreatment.org. Well, what type of challenges have you faced managing staff and implementing safety programs at your company? I'd be interested to hear some of those stories. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I came here five years ago, um, we had a decent program, but we still had elevated risk and we still had um, losses. And, uh, you know, the losses were still below kind of the industry average. Uh, when you look at the uh, OSHA stats and the recordable incident rate, lost time rates, uh, we were below the national average for our industry, but uh, we knew we could do better. So mm -hmm. we took the opportunity to kind of reboot the program. Um, and for us, the, the challenge was how do we get to zero lost time cases? Because that's really our, our benchmark and our ultimate goal. We don't want people to be seriously injured. We don't want people to be away yeah. from work. Um, you're always going to have the occasional recordable case, and you're always going to have the first aid case. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's 
completely unrealistic to say we can get to zero across the board. The only time uh-huh. that's going to happen is when we automate every process and take people out of the equation. <laughs> that's true. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. uh, so that's true. You're right. The real right. Is, I... is, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm a safety realist. It's uh, let's be realistic about the process. Let's be realistic about what we're benchmarking and let's control the risk that we can control. Um, and realistically, we can control lost time cases. And that's by looking at the work practices, creating countermeasures for the risks associated with those practices, and then auditing the process to ensure compliance. And when you yeah. do that, and you do that on a constant continual basis, you have the right team players, you have the right mindset, and that is, you know, we can be just as productive while we're being safe. And that's the, that's the whole culture. Uh, for me, I, I look at three uh, uh, items. And that's safety, quality, and production. And there has to be an equilibrium between those three components. I mean, I can put everyone in bubble wrap, you know, duct tape their hands in front of them so they don't touch anything, and we're going to have no injuries whatsoever. But we're also not going to have any production. No. Uh, so for me, it's, it's how do we balance that? How do we have safe, quality production? And that's by putting the proper countermeasures in place for those risks in working with our subcontractors to perform the tasks properly to begin with. When we educate them and we train them properly, we reduce risk. And that's been the hallmark of our program. And in fact, my company worked 7.6 million man hours last year across the country. We had one lost time case. Wow, that's impressive. That's impressive. I mean, and, and it's the facts are in the numbers. Year over year, we've seen decreases in risk and we've seen decreases in loss because of the program our team has put in place, which is, you know, quality, safe production. Well, what type of tips have you deployed to establish a safety culture that's transformed the business a bit since you've been there in the past five years? Yeah, I mean, uh, overall, it's training and education. And okay. that's the hallmark of our program. Uh, I would probably guarantee that we are probably one of the only general contractors of our size across the country that offers free training to every one of our subcontractors. And we do that uh, during what we call a safe start process. So before mobilization of any of our trades, we meet with the uh, management, in some case, the principal of the company. We meet with their safety team. We meet with their uh, field manager. And we go through not only our policies, processes, and procedures, Uh, But we also talk about training and education and we say, hey, look, you've already received the bid. You've you've already been awarded the project. You have a notice to proceed. So let's find out where you are in reality with training. Are all your people trained in fall protection, ladders, personal protective equipment, silica exposure? We go down the entire list. And whatever the hazard that they may be exposed to or the skill set that they need to clearly be trained in, if they are not, we say, well, that's great. Thank you for identifying that deficit. And then my staff provide immediate training. We set up the appropriate time at the location that works best for us in that sub. And we provide absolute training, whether it's OSHA 10, OSHA 30, silica, fall protection, scaffolding, whatever it is, we provide it. Uh, awesome. A lot of GCs are, are scared of doing that because they assume that there's going to be enhanced risk associated with providing that training. Well, we're not providing anything other than the training on the basic standard as we would as an OSHA 10, 30 instructor or 
certified instructor for any of those areas of you know expertise mm-hmm. um and we're not we're not writing their policy we're just telling them what the best practice is um and by doing that what we've seen is we've seen increased buy-in to safety wow we've so, seen so you're, you're development you're of made- culture yeah, so you're you're in one of the things it sounds like you've established is you know you're really doing that upfront engagement with your subcontractors to yep. kind of like set the stage for the safety expectations on the project and their employees and helping them We're, under helping them provide the, the the actual training they need to do the job safely when they come Well, the on way site. we look at it is we're being a steward not only to the sub but also to industry. When they leave our job site in six, eight weeks, six months, they go to the next general contractor. They're going to be safe. You're helping that guy out. Yeah. Absolutely. And when they come yeah. back to me, they're going to already be trained in those areas. So for us, it's helping them develop the skill set, but it's also allowing them to understand the reason why we have the specific policies, procedures, and processes in place. Oh, if they understand them, yeah, if they understand the policy, procedure, and process, they're going to understand why those controls are in place, and they're not going to balk at that system. The other side effect of this is that my safety team who's teaching are also the same guys that are on that specific job site. So when they see that trainer, that uh, safety professional, they've already spent time with the guy. It may have been two hours, four hours. It may have been a week worth of training in some cases. Mm-hmm. But they get to know these guys on a personal level. Now they're willing to walk up to whoever that is and say, hey, I have a question. It's no longer adversarial. We now actually have a teacher-student relationship. And they kind of look up to my guys. I, I have guys that get phone calls from subs and workers who are working on other GC's projects, and they're calling and asking questions to us. They're saying, hey, uh, I don't understand. Why do I have to do this? Or what is the policy? What is the OSHA requirement? And they're calling us instead of talking to that GC on the job site, which is amazing. Well, you guys established yourself as the, you know, an expert, uh, not, you know, and, and that's awesome. I mean, that is, that's a really great business approach. I, I've not heard people do it like that. I mean, not that we companies that I work with. I mean, they, they have their company expectations on safety and they drill that down to us and we have to drill it down to our, our subcontractors. And we do the same thing, right? It's the drill down and and pass through. But, uh, you know, the way you've handled that approach of, you know, let's, let's see who's coming on site and, um, and doing that training yourself. I mean, that's pretty great. I I think that's a, a win, win and man, kudos to you guys on that. I think you're seeing a lot of dividends come out of that. I mean, absolutely. It's an investment. And that's, that's the whole idea. I'd rather spend the money upfront in training and educating our workforce and our subcontractors and dealing with the problems or the issues before they become problems. Um, I'd rather do that than spend money on the claims. Yeah. And you probably have a lot of contractors that they, they like working for you guys too, because of this type of an approach that they know what to expect. They, they know it's a safe environment to work for and they all want to, you know, go home safe to their families too, when they're done doing the work. And so yep. they know that working for you guys, that, that nine times out of 10, that's happening. <laughs> or maybe yeah, and more, you know, really. there's also the business. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also the business side of safety as well. I mean, we all know that the overarching goal is reduce risk and injury to the workforce. We don't want anyone to go home. We injured. We want everyone to go home sometimes in better shape than they arrived that morning on that job site or in that office. Uh, 
but in the end, there, there's a, a true business component to this as well. Uh, and when you're safer, uh, when the worker feels secure in their work environment, they're going to be more productive. Yeah, you're going to get yeah. better quality out of these guys. And I use fall protection as a great example. Uh, you have a guy who's walking next to an edge of a building and he's afraid to fall. He's not in fall protection. He has completely violated the standard. He's got a six foot or greater fall. Uh, he's going to be slow in all of his work process. Why? Because he feels unsecure. He feels unsafe. So the quality is going to be down. The length of time to perform those uh, tasks are going to increase and you're actually not going to meet schedule. Now you put someone with a guardrail, you put someone with fall protection, you've trained them in the proper deployment, they know how to inspect it, it's being worn correctly. Uh, now that little tub on their back is going to tell them, hey, you're safe. Well, guess what happens to productivity? Quality increases, productivity increases, and our risk has decreased tremendously. And our no, long-term risk, because you think about system failure, you install pipe incorrectly, it's going to separate at some point. We're going to have a secondary loss, whether it's to our general liability or builder's risk line. So it's not just protecting our workers' cop risk. It's yeah, protecting it's... Our other, other, other areas of coverage as well. Yeah, absolutely. Your construction and your, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's great. I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, one of the things I think that, you know, some of the older guys in safety, you know, or you've been around to where you've got the old safety guys coming around and, hey, get your glasses on. Where that hard hat, you know, and always yeah. barking at people. And he was like, you know, the jerk. Right? Nobody want to work with that guy, you know, because he was just, <laughs> you know, I think I think a lot of that perception nowadays is kind of shifting away. It's like, no, it, they're not that type of person anymore that's in these roles. Is that it, it, is that safe to say? No, they're still out there. <laughs> uh, I, I run across it constantly with subcontractors and even some other general contractors that uh, we have friendly uh, discussions and debates with. Uh, mm. They're still alive and well. The dinosaur still exists. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. for, for us, uh, and that's the, the mentality that we're struggling to change out there. It's how do we be proactive? How do we work with people? Um, you know, it, I, I'm fond of saying if you're out there saying, hey, put your safety glasses on and hard hat. You, you've missed the whole point of what we're doing. And right. there is no culture in your organization or with your lower tier subcontractors. Because really, at the end of the day, uh, what should we be looking at is worst work tasks, not PPE. PPE right. should be a standard across the board at this point. I mean, right. it's, it's 2021. Everyone knows you've got to wear safety glasses and hard hats. And in most cases, some sort of retroflective apparel or uh, you know, safety boots, gloves, those things well, are standard. I, I think the pandemic's also highlighted to a whole nother level. Absolutely. I mean, the common person is now talking about PPE. They never knew what the term <laughs> meant before, right? Yeah. Well, now people know what nitrile and butyl are. I mean, it's, uh, it's to the point where they actually <laughs> know the product mask. line. <laughs> yeah. KN95, yeah. N95, APR. Right. Hey, exactly. people understand the lingo. Uh, you know, know, what we find is, is really for us is uh, we're looking at what's the next best thing out there for PPE. I mean, we've gone from, you know, should we be wearing hard hats is uh, the discussion. Should we be moving to construction helmets, which provide real level of uh, protection, uh, protecting your cranial vault from, you know, high speed collisions. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah I look at it like, sense. you know. 
I mean, I look at it this way. I mean, are you going to put a football player out in antiquated pads and a, a helmet made of leather any longer? I mean, we know concussion syndrome exists. We know that you, know, you have to have specialty equipment for doing specialty tasks. Yeah. Uh, and that's where we're moving is we're moving to uh, enhanced PPE, as I like to call it. What is the right equipment for the task? Right. Um, you know, the old days of just regular safety glasses and a, a, you know, a shell on top of your head is over. So it's uh, looking at the, the best equipment available in the market. Uh, what can we put our people in? And, you know, that's where we have the uh, combatants at this point. It's not whether we're going to wear uh, PPE or not. It's, uh, oh, I don't want to wear that new helmet because it looks like a rock climbing helmet versus my uh, full brim, you know, cool construction look. And yeah, yeah. That's our, that's yeah. our new battle out there is getting the older guys used to the newer style equipment and making them understand, hey, this really has a true level of protection. It's got a true protection factor. It's not the hard hat that was invented in 1955 and has you know, been unchanged ever since. Sure, sure. Well, did you know E-Tank is the only environmental rental equipment company in the industry that offers a 100% certified clean guarantee at no additional cost? Well, this gives customers the peace of mind knowing that container contents from the previous renter isn't going to cross-contaminate the contents of the current customer and potentially cause liability concerns. You know, E-Tank also provides a one-of-a-kind complete maintenance program for all its rental items, including liquid-tight roll-off containers, fluid transfer pumps, and filtration system components. To learn more about the types of containers and pumps E-Tank supplies, check out their website at www.etank.net. So the next time you are faced with an environmentally challenging project, give E-Tank a call to help solve your problem. It's just that easy. So, you know, safety professionals have a lot of jobs to do, not not to mention training and, and, and just kind of making sure staff are following the rules. But, you know, when you're faced with a recordable incident, how do you manage those? Because that's a different level of activity and mentality uh, approaching those types of parts of your job and safety. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Sean, you're hitting some really good questions here today. I got to say, uh, you're kind of really hitting the meat and, and potatoes here of safety. I like it. Uh, so uh, the way we do it is we treat every incident the same, whether it is a near miss, whether it's a minor first aid case, uh, report only, uh, medical attention only, where they got just first aid at a clinic and evaluated to a true recordable or lost time case. And it starts with the investigation for us. So we investigate all incidents. And by doing that, we collect real data. We know exactly what's happening out there and we can start looking at countermeasures for risk. Um, we also look at the, um, the uh, not only the incident investigation, but uh, we have a post-incident meeting for every incident that occurs with our project team, the worker and the subcontractor to identify how it occurred. Um, and people may say, hey, that's crazy. But when your team does it on a constant, continual basis, they become expert investigators. Our reports get better. Our reports get more detailed and we get more usable data. Uh, we also find that, hey, some of these incidents are actually not only minor incidents, but they may be near misses. 
hey, I got a, a cut on my finger, but it's because a razor knife flew across the room because someone threw it <laughs> and it lacerated my finger. Well, that's also a near miss. as an exaggeration of uh, some of the cases. Sure. But, yeah. You know, it's you know, realistically anything can happen out there. It's construction. So, um, you know, we find out some of these root causes are just insane and we've got to put controls in place, although they only caused a minor injury there. Uh, they could have caused a major injury or fatality. So we investigate everything. So by doing that, uh, what that has actually done is it creates our subcontractor base and even our own employees to really start thinking about how they work. Mm-hmm. They don't want to be bogged down with investigations. The the supervisors on the job site say, hey, if they're going to investigate everything, I'd better be very careful in how we work and how we operate. Yeah, I don't want to waste my time in being sucked into these things either. You so don't want to be on the other side. Effect. Yeah, you don't want to be yeah. on the other side of a 5Y scenario, right? I mean, those are brutal. I mean, and, and I, I'm, I've been on the administrative side or the management side. It's like, okay, let's figure out what's going on. And, and you know, they're all important. But, you know, the time that's involved with going through that, that's not productive, right? The the internal mm-hmm. cost to a company to, you know, to do these investigations, it can be expensive. I mean, let's be honest, right? Yeah, absolutely. The most most expensive part of our, our day is the use of, of manpower. So, I mean, that's our biggest resource and it's our most expensive resource. And when I have one or two and sometimes three safety professionals, whether they're the area safety director or safety manager, assistant safety manager or safety coordinator out there, and now they're tied up doing an investigation for several hours. That, that's a loss of uh, production for us. Yeah. So, right. um, well, how do you guys so, handle near miss reporting? Commitment. How do you handle it's, near it's miss same, reporting? Same way? Same way. Everything gets reported okay. and our, our subs have just become accustomed to it. And uh, they know if they don't report something that their work is going to stop and that it's going to get investigated anyway. If we mm-hmm. find out about it later, it's, just, it's worse for all those individuals involved. So um, they understand our process and our program. So they freely pretty much report everything. Uh, gotcha. You know, If you look at our stats, we have a ton of incident reports and we have very few first aids, very few recordables and almost no lost time cases. Uh, and part of that is because of our, our preventative measures that we have in place, but it's also part of that investigative process. Now our recordables and our lost times, we go to the next level. So um, with the recordables and, and or lost time cases, that's a complete stop of work process. We reevaluate those processes and we have an executive meeting where we bring in the principal of the company that uh, is our first tier and in some cases lower tier principals as well and say, hey, uh, let's go through these processes. Where were the failures? And we discuss in a non-punitive way uh, all the causative factors, all the contributing factors and policy violations or lack of policy. Then we help them create a policy to ensure that doesn't reoccur. We do lessons learned. We send them out uh, throughout the entire organization to every one of our locations, and we publicize that incident. Now, we don't say where it happened, who was involved, or what company, uh, but we talk about all of the contributing factors. Uh, we talk about root cause, and then we ensure that we don't have a repeat of that incident. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, so... You got a lot of, you know, involvement with diving into the incidents, which is great because, you know, it shows a commitment and, you know, that you're serious about, you know, understanding and learning that uh, what what went wrong. And 
How do you get, how important are you, are you guys, or I'm sorry, let me ask it this way. How important are tailgate safety meetings, you know, and how effective are they for you guys? Are, are you still doing them? I mean, I'm assuming you're doing them every day, right? Yeah. Well, it, it's kind of that statutory thing, you know, we've got to do reoccurring training in the field. Toolbox talks or, or tailgate talks are kind of the the hallmark of, of that system. Um, I, I personally hate the tailgate or toolbox talk. It's completely ineffective the way it's done by the majority of industry. Um, mm-hmm. The problem is, is people purchase or download those cartoonish, uh, really short, abbreviated um, safety lectures. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have someone sitting there reading, thou shall ensure you drink one ounce of water. You know, it's like no one listens. Everyone's on their phone. They sign the document because they have to. They pass it around. And five minutes later, no one in that tailgate talk remembers what you talked about. Mm -hmm. Now, the way we push it is a little different. We tell our subs, hey, abandon those books. Pull out one of your policies and procedures. Talk about one of the operations you're doing. If you're doing an overhead drilling operation and drilling in the concrete, talk about the process. Talk about your procedure. And if you don't have a procedure, here's our procedure. Use that and talk to your guys. Uh, Get a job safety analysis, JSA set up. Well, I hate JSAs. I'm I'm not a fan of the AHA JSA process. I think that's another antiquated process that bears no fruit in in So behavior-based safety, that's another, you know... Yeah, to me, you know, what really makes an impact is the supervisor at the beginning of every shift saying, hey, Fred, Tony, Juan, you're working on the fifth floor. You're going to work next to the edge of the building. Make sure your guardrails are up. If the guardrails have to come down, make sure you're in fall protection. You know it's got to be tight. You know the D-ring's got to be in the center of your back. Make sure you're anchored to something that will support 5,000 pounds of force. And make sure you've checked off your harness for the day. Make sure you really inspect it. What that does is it tells the worker, hey, this is what I'm doing. These are the hazards, and this is what I need to do. This is also what my supervisor, the guy that signs off on my paycheck every week, wants me to do. And when they feel that the supervisor has buy-in, there's a complete trickle-down effect. When you have a competent supervisor who cares and talks to the workers directly about expectation, whether it's production, safety, or quality, it makes a difference because at the end of the day, the worker always wants to make the supervisor happy. Why? Because it keeps them working. The supervisor knows, hey, this is a productive guy. This is a guy I can move up from installing pipe to supervising the installation of pipe and then move up to a superintendent position, so on and so forth. I mean, there, there's there's real value in when the supervisor cares and we see it day in day out when the the foreman or superintendent care about the work and they talk to the worker about the work process we see a reduction in injuries we see better quality we see more production that's really good i like that i like that um i mean realistically we look at the aha and jha process i mean it, this all started from the u.s corps of army engineers it's a paperwork driven process it's check boxes Work task, hazard, controls, level of control. You know, we've all seen those forms, especially the new the ones that light up red, process. yellow, and green. Yeah, yep. I mean, it's all great. I mean, and what really happens is you get the one guy in the office who writes out all these documents. They standardize it. They bring it from job site to job site. Everyone signs it. No one reads it because it's just like a toolbox talk again. 
blah, blah, we've done this a million times. No one takes it seriously. No one actually learns those processes. They're useless in, in reality. So I'm not a fan of that. Uh, so yeah. like, again, uh, you know, it's really, it's about buying from the supervisor, direct discussion, and, um, you know, that one-on-one -on -one repertoire with the uh, worker itself. When you communicate with the worker and you communicate your desires and how important it is to you, uh, the worker is almost always going to comply. Yeah, no, that's good. So if you're listening to this podcast, I'll bet you may be thinking, how can I level up and advance my career? If you want to get that promotion, increase your regulatory knowledge, gain professional recognition and earn more money, then it's time to obtain an industry credential from the Institute of Hazardous Material Management. The IHMM offers eight credentials that are ANSI approved for students, experienced, skilled employees without a degree, and for the degreed professional looking to set themselves apart from the pack. Their credentials focus on three main areas, Certified Hazardous Material Manager, the CHMM, the Certified Dangerous Goods Professional, the CDGP, and the Certified Safety and Health Manager, the CSHM. If you become an IHMM credential professional, then you will be in the top 1% of your profession and your credential will have a global reach. Check out their programs they offer at www.ihmm.org. That's www.ihmm.org. What are you waiting for? Get started today. One thing that I've been interested to know, and I've seen a lot of trends in, in the industry right now, but talk about if you, what type of technology do you deploy with your safety professionals? Are you using any technology that's helping you, you know, track this information, helping you run the analytics on things? What do you guys do in that space? Or is it old school? I got it on, you know, spreadsheets and I'm, I'm managing it that way. You know, talk a little bit about that. Sure. You know, we use a combination of resources and tools. I mean, uh, the, the reality is you've got to benchmark data. You've got to crunch data. You've got to have good data coming into the system. Mm -hmm. um, so we primarily use Procore, which is our construction management system. It does finances, um, accounting, safety. Uh, everything gets fed into that data uh, monster. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're able to do daily reports on it. Our um, All of our correspondence to our subcontractors goes through the system. It's a great system overall. Uh, now, for the, the pure data uh, benchmarking, it's really Google Sheets and Excel spreadsheets for us. Um, mm -hmm. th there are a ton of software packages out there, but you know, we already invest so highly in software packages in construction. Um, it, realistically, it, it's impossible to continuate and purchase software package after software package after software package. Uh, you know, the, the pricing models on these systems are a little bit out of control in industry. Um, so we use some of the low high tech. So a lot of data <laughs> sheets, uh, spreadsheets, but it works for us. Hey, uh, man, I mean, that's we're all able right. to count for, yeah, we're able to count for everything. We're able to pull it up at a moment's notice and, uh, we're able to track and trend very easily with uh, utilizing kind of the low tech Google, uh, you know, docs and uh, Excel spreadsheets. Sure. Well, what are some of the challenges that you see and, you know, that in the horizon for you guys in, as a, you know, building trade or as an industry around safety um, that you're, you're kind of, you know, planning for, you know, concerned about talk about that. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, pandemic response is kind of up there right now. We're looking at not only uh, what is out there currently and what is now endemic, and of course, now we consider COVID uh, endemic virus, uh, but what else is coming down the road? Uh, variants of COVID, other diseases. Uh, I mean, uh, not to get political, but, you know, we're dealing with influx of uh, foreign nationals across borders who are going to have jobs within the U.S., and what is their vaccination status? Are we going to see a rise of tuberculosis? Are we going to see a rise of endemic uh, viruses and bacteria that are, are sorry, endemic in other locations that are now going to reemerge within the United States? Um, you know, we have a very vulnerable workforce um, who are exposed to in tight uh, locations and operating quarters with other workers. Uh, so yeah. it's only a matter of time till we have, you know, other outbreaks whether it's cholera, hepatitis, tuberculosis, uh, those are things we really need to be concerned about. Um, you know, uh, we, we look at uh, storms, we look at uh, weather events. Um, Climate change at, seems to be having an effect on the, <laughs> the construction industry recently, haven't it? Uh, well, you know, it's not only that, but it's also aging infrastructure. I mean, in D.C., right. we had a massive storm that rolled through and the infrastructure couldn't... Um, hold back the uh, the water so sure. we had massive flooding on multiple job sites where we had people trapped in construction vehicles and on top of cars in front of our job site uh, where we mm. had a, a system make rescues of uh, people from those vehicles before they washed away down kind of the streets that became rivers mm. uh, you know we're looking at unrest in in a lot of the jurisdictions and areas that we work in we work in a lot of inner cities so we look at, you know, last summer with riots and protests, they had massive impact on our projects. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at you know, eco-terrorism. You know, we build in a lot of wood, so that's always an issue. Are we going to have someone come down and attempt to burn down and commit arson on our projects? Wow. Um, there's a lot to think about. It's all stuff that's out there. Yeah, Absolutely. There's a, I mean, geez, you, it's like you got to be – keep your head on a swivel for all the opportunities that are maybe coming down the pipe that you need to address. I mean, just well, COVID in several itself, lectures on, on co-op and uh, continuity of operation planning and pre-planning for emergent events and the chaos that might ensue in the workplace. Um, you know, there, there's anything you can imagine that's happening out in society. You know, the job sites are a microcosm of that. So we see increased assaults on projects. You see, armed robberies on and outside of the projects, uh, uh, vandalism, uh, you name it, we're seeing it out there, not not specifically with our company, but I think across the board, uh, we're seeing in, increased acts of uh, destruction, vandalism, uh, you know, assaults in and around a lot of these projects. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's you, you got to monitor the news, whatever is happening locally, you need to start preparing for. You see things uh -huh. happening in, in, internationally, well, it's a sign that it's coming to our doorstep at some point. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, so, like, how's the how has it been to manage a workforce with a lot of the COVID uh, requirements for testing and or you know basically vaccination? I mean, has that caused a lot of workforce strain for you guys? Uh, for us, no, because we've done uh, um, a reasonable job in in uh, getting the information out to our people, getting it out in advance. Uh, we have a, a very highly educated workforce. Most of uh, our staff come out of college with engineering degrees. Um, they're good with numbers. Uh, 
they, they figure the risk real quick. And in, in most cases, it was, hey, let's go get vaccinated. We really didn't have to put that message out there. Our workforce really uh, tackled that on their own. Uh, you know, we're currently we're at about a 95 percent vaccination rate within our own organization. That's- that's great. So it's it, and that was with very little prodding. Of course, we said, "Hey, you know, it's recommended. Uh, it's a best practice. It's going to keep you safe, your family safe, and people, you know, just gravitated to it naturally." Um, yeah, same thing with PPE use. You know, we put it out there, and and when our policy started to lessen, depending on jurisdictional requirements, um, we still have a high demand for the use of uh, wipes, Purell, whether it's the personal ones on your desk or the ones in the office space or on the job sites, uh, cleaning agents uh, and mass demand is still up there. We're still providing a kind of logoed uh, PPE out to our staff and uh, disposable stuff. And it's still flying off the shelves and it's still being used on a continual basis. So, um, you know, really, it's it's educating your workforce, telling them what the expectations are. Um, we're not big into the whole mandate thing. Um, we're waiting to see what direction uh, Department of Labor and OSHA goes as far as that executive order that's been issued by the Biden administration. But there is no binding order uh, nationally. So right. currently, we're just we're going with jurisdiction, jurisdiction. If the jurisdiction requires masks in the workplace, we're requiring it. If it doesn't, then it's optional for those that are vaccinated. And for us, anyone who is unvaccinated, we ask that they continue to practice social distancing as best they can and to wear uh, proper face coverings. That's great. That's great. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, we've learned a lot today about, you know, the challenges of, of safety in the workplace today. I mean, and, and, and just knowing we've got companies like uh, CBG that's out there helping educate their workforce, their subcontractors, the, you know, the education that they get out, you know, and they provide is so, you know, it's paramount and it's, it's, it's great to see the culture you guys have, de- you know, developed there. Uh, you know, kind of, like you said, it's top down. I think it's really important. Um, and this has been a good, good conversation. Um, well, what, what's, uh, what's looking, what's up on the, the dock for you guys in the future here? What's, uh, you guys expanding, you guys growing, what, what, you know, how many more safety professionals do you need? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're still looking for people. It, it's harder and harder to find uh, qualified, good people, just like in every industry. Um, you know, we, we currently have 20 full-time safety and risk management staff. Um, so we're, we're growing, we're continuing to grow as our company grows. We're going to continue to add safety professionals. Uh, as the jobs become more and more complex, then we have more uh, personnel that are doing one project at a time. Uh, we've got a really great group, um, and we're continuing to expand and grow. And we're going to continue to be a steward for industry and continue to push the message that, hey, you can get to zero lost time cases, and you can reduce your risk, increase your profitability, decrease your risk. That's great. That's great. Well, Dan, hey, thanks for coming on the show today. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of safety professionals and, and just people in the in the industry that will want to hear this message. And, um, you know, I think it resonates well and it, it overlaps with a lot of people's duties in, in this uh, environmental space, uh, construction space, uh, you, you name it. So um, thanks a lot for coming on the show. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again, Sean. Appreciate it. Yeah. I want to thank our 
guest Dan Blankfield for coming onto the show today. If you want to learn more about Dan and how he is creating a safety culture in today's environment, you can connect with him via LinkedIn or his email at dan.blankfeld at gicmadison.com. We'll also put a link to his contact information on my website. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks, or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. You can also follow me on Instagram or the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to tell your friends and subscribe. We'd also love to hear feedback from the ET Nation about the episode and any future topics you'd like me to cover. Well, for now, thanks for listening. Until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today. Thank you.